Hello, and welcome to Chronic Correlations with your host Fiona and Danny. Please note our podcast is for information only and to please seek medical advice from a registered professional. And on today's show, we have Jess. And how are you, Jess? Hi, I'm well, thanks. How are you going? I'm good, thank you very much. So um, me and Danny have spoken to you before and I thought I would give you the moment to introduce yourself to the people listening and, you know, give more information to them about yourself and your EGS journeys. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I am an Australian who's been living in Belgium since 2019 and I was a classical musician, now turned writer and disability advocate. When I moved to Belgium a couple of years ago, the majority of my health problems were still undiagnosed. And like much of the other people in the EDS community, I had experienced my fair share of dismissal by medical professionals. And so I had learned to keep a lot of my symptoms to myself, no matter how bad they got. And that led to me having a pretty significant health crisis alone in a foreign country, which was lovely. But the silver lining was that uh, the healthcare system in Belgium is pretty great and I was able to form some good relationships with some doctors here and over the course of the next couple of years, I was diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, fibromyalgia, mast cell activation disorder and also migraine um, and I also have premenstrual dysphoric disorder and a bunch of pelvic health problems. Um and that big transition in my life is what led me to leave like my first career in the performing arts industry and to start focusing on improving the lives of other people in the disability and chronic illness community. Um, I really like to focus on talking about things that I feel don't get enough attention. So that's why I was drawn to your podcast and the opportunity to talk about more taboo things. Um, and in this case, disabled sex and sexual dysfunction. I mean, I think even Danny can agree with this. You know, I think, like you said, the taboo aspects like sexual dysfunction is a really important thing to discuss, especially in the community, because it's the only way that we can really make correlations and understand more things and make it more transparent so more people can talk about it, Jess, you know? And I think Danny can agree in that, can't you, Danny? Definitely. I mean, it's something that all of us do then but we nobody talks about I mean it's, it's a very British thing not to talk about sex it, it really is you know for whatever reason but I mean if you look around everybody's had sex so you're generally over 18 haven't they uh, you know there's children and, and yeah um, it's, it's a very natural thing is my point but it's, it's seen as a, something that's dirty and shouldn't be talked about but um, I think it's really important that we talk about it as you said the disability aspect and how it affects people with disabilities and in the different ways i.e being you know just even down to pain uh dislocations mm -hmm. being being uncomfortable bleeding uh menstrual issues uh all those things um yeah i'm again it's something that is not discussed and it should be discussed for sure i totally agree and uh, something that popped into my mind um when you were talking about you know, it's something we're not speaking about, but it's so common is not just, not only of just like most people had sex, but the vast, vast, vast majority of us are only here because of sex as yes, well. So exactly. we might as well talk about it. <laughs> yeah, none of us would be here without it generally, no. Yeah. <laughs> generally, we're saying there. Um, yeah, I mean, for, for you then, I mean, your experiences, Jess, how I mean, do you find it painful? I mean, I know, I know, I, I've had pain. You know, I've been painful for many years myself. Um, what about yourself? 
Yeah, so I've had, like, I've experienced a number of different aspects of sexual dysfunction over the course of my life. And I think the first thing that I experienced was penetration being painfully tight sometimes. Mm -hmm. And Mm. I had sort of fallen victim to some of the rhetoric around it being normal to have discomfort during, like, your initial sexual experiences in particular. And also the idea that, like, having a tight pelvic floor is a good thing when. In reality, having like a strong mobile pelvic floor is great, but having like a pelvic floor that's always like perpetually tight to the point where it's painful is not a good thing, you know? Um, And that's something I learned uh, when I went to pelvic floor therapy, which is something I guess we might talk about later. But, um, you know, when I initially had that experience, I didn't have so many other health factors compounding the issue, so it was still pretty manageable. But um as I got older and my health issues got worse, you know, that naturally just led to me being really fatigued and down and not really um, being very sexually active. And um, when my long-term partner and I wanted to uh, get things back on track, for lack of a better (laughs) phrase, um, I found that that pain had just gotten so much worse once I was older. And, um, you know, I was at the kind of climactic point of going through this health crisis and so we both had a lot on our plates mentally and physically so it just kind of became this elephant in the room that we didn't talk about for a long time and I also felt like whenever I came close to opening up to anybody about this felt kind of like quite misunderstood and almost like judged almost like berated actually like a lot of people were more worried about like how hard it must be on the man in the relationship and stuff rather than about me and the support I needed to work through those issues like mentally but also just like practically physically like you know this isn't normal and I was lucky because eventually um, a psychotherapist that I was seeing asked me about it in a nice empathetic way finally and I was finally able to talk about it even though I was quite upset and embarrassed to be honest at the time but you know, she helped me reflect on the fact that I was, you know, I had gotten into this pattern of like actively avoiding sex. And that got me reflecting on the fact that it had actually just been becoming more and more painful the older I'd gotten. And, you know, sex is not meant to be painful, but I didn't think about it that way because growing up with an undiagnosed connective tissue disorder, there were never any physical activities that weren't Mm. painful for me. So there was never a red flag in my mind that, you know, this wasn't normal. So that was like a real turning point for me. And apart from that, um, I also had another very funny experience, um, which we kind of, we spoke about this when we had our initial call when we first met. Um, I met this beautifully blunt um, French doctor here in Belgium who asked me just very unprompted about whether I was experiencing sexual dysfunction during my initial evaluation. I remember being quite shocked because I suppose um, a lot of white Australians maybe do have that British influence of not talking about sex and to be asked about it so bluntly was quite the contrast. But, um, you know, he helped me realise that um, other problems I'd run into like loss of sensation and issues with like lubricating normally were actually really common as EDS progressed and I had no idea about that so uh even though it it gave me a bit of a shock at the time I'm I'm glad because it really helped me normalize those things and yeah connect me to um 
people like you guys who um, are also open to talking about it in an open and honest way. And I just think we need a lot more of that. No, I mean, totally. We need a lot more transparency in the community. I think there shouldn't be taboos. I think, you know, that everything should be transparent for people to learn from and actually create correlations with as well. That's another crucial point. And, you know, when you look at things, for example, like different cultures, like you say, you know, if you go somewhere like, um, you know, in Australia, the UK, if you like go and talk about, you know, sexual dysfunction, you know, not many doctors will ask you that question with EDS. They don't. You know, so from that point, it's very hard to pinpoint it down because one, they don't ask, two, it's a cultural issue. And then when you mm-hmm. do meet someone, generally they're quite upfront about it as well. So it's like a bit of like two extremes, if that makes sense, Jess. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the thing is that in some ways, like I feel like we have made a lot of progress um, in how we talk about sex, but and I even see in popular culture, I guess, some examples of sexual dysfunction being starting to be represented. Like I've seen a few shows which have featured things like vaginismus and vulvodynia, but I feel like they're still represented in quite a shallow way. Like they only are affecting young, sexually repressed white heterosexual women. And there's so much more to it than that. And um you know, I, I think it's a real shame that it's still being pigeonholed like that. There's a whole bunch of reasons why people may have difficulty with sexual activity. I mean, I've already listed a few things, but, you know, there's also issues with health problems like with the internal organs and things like that that can make sex painful. So it's really important that we are talking about it more and the full spectrum of what what all the possibilities are that we need to be aware of. No, totally. I mean, like, even like with me previously, I mean, you know, in my younger years as well, even like sex is painful for me as well, you know, but I never had anyone ask me, you know, is it painful? Are you having any issues? I had nothing like that. Even, you know, mm. sex as well. I had that as well and part dysfunction as well, but nobody ever asked me that question. And, you know, I think like you mentioned, there are many different type of sides to it, you know, parts to it, and it needs to be explored more. Do you know what I mean? With more understanding of it within the community as well. And I think even Danny, you've had a lot of experiences there as well, haven't you? I mean, yeah, for me, I mean, I've had, I used to get, um, in my younger days, I used to get quite a lot of bleeding, for example. Um, I remember, so smear tests are a nightmare for me, you know, if, if we're talking about things which are invasive. A smear test in the same, um, the speculum, I find extremely painful as well. Um, when I I had to have treatment when I was 19, I had to have 14 lots of colposcopy treatment because I had precancerous cells on my cervix. Um, so they, But what they told me was that when they pushed on my cervix, it bled like a sponge. They said it was like a sponge being squeezed of water. Every time they pushed on it, it just bled. So the tissue was obviously compromised there, you know, and weak. Um, they also the other thing was after I had all my babies what you were saying about tightness there Jess and and um, they couldn't believe after I'd given birth my everything shrunk back immediately Uh, and I mean immediately so usually it takes time for the cervix to close and and for everything to go back as it was on my internal examination about 10 minutes after having a baby it was like I'd never had a baby because it had just literally shrunk straight back and, and really gone quite tight again there um 
my pelvic floor actually, um, I'm 44, my pelvic floor is excellent. And I've been told by the, um, I mean, not a laughing matter, but I'm on about the muscle, the, the tension there then. They've told me I've got the pelvic floor of a 22-year-old woman, basically, on the score, because they score you on certain things. So actually, yeah, mine is still um, very, very tight there. But yet other people can have a problem with um, a relaxed pelvic floor where then it causes problems with um, urinary dysfunction, where uh, people leak urine when coughing, sneezing, um, and those type of things. Um, like I said, for me, it was pain. I've had painful experiences. I mean, I'm not very big anyway, my feet. I'm quite small um, in every way. Oh, I mean <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, and the other problems I've had is with things like dislocations. Because I'm very, very bendy, and because I can put my legs behind my head, it's like I haven't got anything, if, if you see what I mean, my hips um, dislocate very easily then or grind very easily or I um, get sort of pins and needles or pain in my, um, like my bum, like the sciatic nerve, things like that. If, it's, if you know, if my leg was positioned in the wrong way, for, if, you know, that type of thing. So um, for us, like I said now, obviously lots of people are at different stages again there's going to be lots of people who listen to this who are sort of you know in their younger years and haven't had much many sexual experiences and there's going to be older women who've had you know much more there's going to be people who've been married for 20 years you know there's going to be lots and lots of different scenarios here um i mean for you fee i mean we've talked we, we obviously talk about lots of things don't we in our conversations and when we've spoken with you jess i mean your experiences you've you know, you've suffered with this for a long, you know, for, for as long as you can remember, really, your first experiences and things like that. And it's not some, it's something we should be looking at more and, and looking at why, not trying to um, put a plaster on things as the saying is, isn't it? Just put a, put a, a bandaid on something and ignore it. It just seems to get wiped over because, and like you said, Jess, men, the men with sexual dysfunction seems to be a bigger thing than women with sexual dysfunction. It does. So men, if a man can't orgasm or there's a problem, it, you know, it's seen as a serious problem. But I know there's lots and lots of women out there who struggle to orgasm and things like that, again, because of sexual dysfunction. Yeah, it's well, first of all, I just want to say, like, I really empathize with what some of the things you had to say there, particularly about joint dislocations and things like that, and how unpleasant that could be. And I think what you brought up about um pelvic floor is really interesting because something I've learned with my little journey through addressing all of this is that it it is quite a big network of muscles and nerves and things like that which I didn't really know before and it's such a shame that this area of our body just because it's you know stigmatized because of sex that we don't pay attention to it in the same way that we do other parts of our body like you know we all well, hopefully most of us had at least some level of health and physical education growing up at school and things like that. And, you know, I think we all know, like if we had a sore shoulder or, you know, you hurt your elbow playing tennis or something, you would go to a physio, get it checked out, talk it through. You would talk about, um, you know, like rehabilitation, medicine, like there would be a whole range of things that you would discuss as options and possibilities. And why are we ignoring this one part of our body like if I was in charge of the world I honestly think like a great way to address this would be really broadening our approach to sex education like I don't think we should just be talking about like the medical aspects of sex I mean obviously 
they're important and young people need to be aware of the risks, but also like about um, things like this and about how, you know, people with different types of bodies can enjoy sex safely. And like, I mean, it does seem kind of like a lofty goal, but that's why I'm really glad we're at least starting to talk about it now within our community where it's possibly the most stigmatized because, you know, sadly disabled sex is already stigmatized just in its own right to a Mm -hmm. certain extent. Yeah. People think if disabled people don't have sex, I'm sure. Um, But again, you know, sexual desire is one of the most normal things in the world, isn't it? Pheromones are, you know, you're attracted to people's pheromones without even people knowing. You don't even realise. And again, pheromones are to do with blood group. It's to do with the ABO group. Um, And you, other things I thought about while we were talking there, I mean, lots of people have allergies. I know lots of people who have an allergy to condoms, for example. Yeah. Uh, So like latex allergies, condom allergies, uh, the, I think it's the, could be something to do with the lubricant that's on the condom as well. People become allergic to. Um, what else have we thought about? Mm. The contraceptive pill itself. Um, a lot of people have problems with taking oestrogen, um, especially if we've got family histories, for example. Um, like I've got a history of breast cancer in my family, so I, I've i hit the menopause, but I'm reluctant to... I, I um, This is my own personal um, choice. But I have decided that I do not want oestrogen replacement because of the history of breast cancer in my family. And I will try and replace that oestrogen in other more natural ways than, um, as as I would say, for me. Again, everybody should speak to their registered medical professional. But oestrogen in itself, I mean, we've talked about this in lots of podcasts. If you change the balance of one thing, then you're changing the balance of the other. So if you're giving somebody oestrogen... Um, estrogen and testosterone run in a ratio. So if you if you're over supplementing with one, that's going to cause an issue with the other, um, and vice versa. So if you give somebody too much testosterone, they're going to need estrogen as well. Um, and and again, obviously, all those things as you said about estrogen, that's um, you said about vaginal dryness, things like that. That's linked to lack of estrogen, for example. Um, in all the studies that I've seen. Mm-hmm. So all these things sort of tie in is my point, Jess, you know, the pelvic floor aspects, the, the vaginal, the dysfunction, um, all vaginal dryness, um, libido as well, because some people don't actually have um, the desire then, which uh, mainly women, uh, obviously men are much more, um, seem to be much more sexually uh, or whether it's just more because it's more public, but men are definitely, you know, more, um, sexually orientated then than a lot of women. I think I think the statistics are men think on average about sex is it a hundred times you know a, a couple of times a second you know is it's constantly in their brain. Um, whereas obviously women and that's the difference between our hormone levels and things, isn't it? Um, again, a lot of people I've spoken to in the community actually in women have quite high sex drive. Um, you know, uh, so like I said, swings and roundabouts. Um, I mean, from my work, and obviously everyone's aware of my research with zinc, zinc is involved in helping with libido, uh, estrogen, testosterone. Um, Whether you're deficient in testosterone or have too much, actually zinc regulates it either way, for example. Um, And the same with libido. It helps with uh, increasing libido. I've got papers on women who are in postmenopausal like myself, where it has a great effect on all these things. But there's one thing I wanted to add to that as well about the education point that I wanted to go back on Jess with. So, you know, like even in like sex education, for example, okay, even like in our years, 
you know, Jess and Danny, they talk about STIs and, you know, sex education along the medical side. But where did you ever hear about, you know, the women's aspect or issues, i.e. sexual dysfunction and things like that? You didn't really hear about that? Do you know what I mean? So there was yeah, absolutely. None, yeah. There was none of that education in the sense of to actually understand the other problems in relation to it. Because if we look at it, in a way, it is multi-systemic. Okay. It is a part of our body and it should be treated like that. And, you know, if you think of things like hormones and that, it can affect us multi-systemically. It can, you know, anything as in gynecology and that is really important in our lives, you know, as, you know, any type of person, female, male and so forth. You know, it's important to have that, you know, it's natural to have that sexual drive and desire, right? But I do think there needs to be a better education when it comes to understanding not just things like STIs and the medical aspect of sex education, but also the missing things and the taboo subjects that we're discussing today, because then people can recognise it at an earlier point. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I mean, I definitely... So my experience of sex education, and this is quite similar to what I've heard a lot of other Australians say, is that it's very kind of like fear motivated. Like it's all about the risks and what can go wrong and really applying a lot of pressure to use birth control, which I can understand to a certain extent, but, you know, I was never educated about any of the potential risks or side effects of using birth control and I'm not even talking about things specific to um, EDS or MCAS but just like in general like the amount of women or you know even people who of course were initially socialized as women have told me so many stories about negative impacts that birth controls had on their health and you know to be fair there's a lot of people that it has been really helpful for and I'm happy for them. But yeah, it's just not good. The lack of education about the risks, like for me, um, with my premenstrual dysphoria as well, um, I found certain birth control options have made that dangerously worse at times. And yeah, we need better education about yeah, those things. I, I totally too. agree. I mean, no, I've got two yeah, daughters, yeah. um, who are no longer teenagers but when they hit their teenagers they like us have suffered with bleeding issues menstrual problems and I've taken them to the GP and the first thing they do is offer to put them on the contraceptive pill which again it is in the way but we surely we should be looking at the reason why a 14 year old girl has got excessive issues with hemorrhaging through clothes and things and bleeding excessively and irregular periods surely we should be looking at the the reason why the root cause of all these problems rather than just trying to like I said put a plaster on it and right we'll take this pill and this will make you feel better and this will help that because ultimately when yes it might make your symptoms better for that but that is having an effect elsewhere in the body because everything in the body is linked, you know, and, and I mean, it's a proven fact, there's the gut brain axes, there's, uh, you know, all these different axes, which uh, the renal axes and so on and so forth. If you start supplementing one thing, then it's going to start making changes elsewhere. As I've said in many podcasts, if you change the input of something, like in a cake, you will then change the output of something, uh, you know, ultimately. And not always. I think the thing is, Danny, I think 
also as well, going back to that, I mean, to give you an idea, like when I was young, when I was 14, 15, okay, I had severely heavy periods, okay? And the thing is, is what not a lot of people take into consideration as well is one, the root cause, but also the quality yep. of life. You know, I think you can understand this, Jess. It's like, mm-hmm. if you have heavy bleeding, you have really bad menstruation issues or a menstruation cycle, the effect on you and having to wear like, for example, I have to wear like two pairs of trousers just to stop things from coming through, you know, that is not, you know, normal on any level, you know, and I got to a stage where I became so anemic, my iron was like 5% to 9% at one point. Yikes. Yeah. So you think of that when you're like 14, 15, it's, it's a scary place to be. And there's that sense of quality of life. And I think when it comes to gynecology issues, it can have a massive impact, can't it, Jess? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think what you've just said about it not being normal is great because, I mean, the three of us are here and we've all had these issues. And then Danny's daughters have had these issues as well. And it just goes to show just because something is occurring frequently in our population doesn't mean it's mm-hmm. like normal or okay and um yeah I actually so I was first put on the contraceptive pill when I was 12 um and at the time it was a big relief because it did give me temporary um symptom control but yeah looking back at that now um it is wild to me that um I was plonked onto like a bunch of synthetic hormones rather than addressing um trying to address whether any I had any underlying health problems um yeah that that, like, yeah. that was the same uh, like I said I mean it's 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 like a it's like a, it's almost as if it's normal in my family Jess so all my family experience it and always did and all my aunties and my mum and my sisters and it's just accepted as oh well this you know this is what happens in our family everybody oh we always have had bad periods and you know I would bleed for eight eight I mean, mm-hmm. weeks sometimes, weeks and weeks and weeks without a break. You know, I bleed for three weeks solid um, and it would be really heavy and it's constant. And mm-hmm. the cost to people as well under the current climate, because actually tampons and sanitary towels are very expensive. They are. For a box of tampons, it's quite expensive. Again, um, my personal view, um, I have used tampons in the past, but my personal view now is I don't, um, I am concerned about the links with tampons to toxoplasmosis and the, the bacterial burden that mm-hmm. it then gave, gives to, to us as a user. Um, again, the hygiene aspect of a 14-year-old girl inserting a tampon. I mean, it's been proven throughout COVID that people do not wash their hands, you know. Um, so the bacterial burdens um, of us using things like that as well. Um, the other aspect, again, as we said, the bleeding I mean, for any teachers listening, can we please not question a 14-year-old girl if she tells you she needs to go to the toilet during a class? <laughs> oh, yes. yes. Can we please you. not yeah. do that? Can <laughs> we please so just true. say, yes, no problem. Yeah. Off you go. Rather than question and, and make them sit there because I've had to actually physically go and pick one of my uh, daughters up from school because it's been that bad. They've had to come home and shower and change. So... Mm-hmm. That's yeah, and again, oh, that's for, awesome. I yeah. know that some teachers in the school have, you know, at points refused to let them go. How is that okay for them to be sat there like mm. that? Because you, I mean, teenagers are a hard enough time as it is. You don't need any additional, you know, 
problems, i.e. having to sit there or having a bled through your clothes and then having to parade in front of the whole class or, you know. So, yeah, can we please, any teachers listening, please can we let these young girls go to the toilet? Again, sanitary sanitary products, I believe, I mean, they are, as we said, very expensive. Under the current climate, people cannot afford gas, electric and food. These things then go down the list. I know that some food banks do actually source uh, sanitary towels and tampons. I think mainly sanitary towels. Um, they, they do offer them. But again, it's, it's something that, like sex, happens to nearly every woman unless there's medical issues. And, and so do menstrual periods. So it's never, they're never going to go away if we want to keep reproducing. So it's something that we should be looking at at the forefront of um, helping with then, helping these young girls. They, they should be free for these, you know, for these girls. They shouldn't have to um, sort of go hiding and running and go into the office and all these type of things to go and get a sanitary towel off a nurse and have to go and ask in front of a room full of people, can I have a sanitary towel, please? These type of things, you know, they should all be, for example... I support Manchester United. I'm just, again, I'm not promoting them. I am a little bit. But um, what I was going to say was, when I go to the ladies in Manchester <laughs> United, on the wall, there are two vending machines, one full of tampons and one full of sanitary towels. You don't have to pay for them. You can just take them. They're in little boxes. They supply them, which I think is very, very good. You know, I think it's an excellent thing That's to do. Great, and I think yeah. a lot more people yeah. should take that initiative the same. And, and again, supply them rather than people having to pay for them. Um, because it is, yeah. it's, you know, I mean, yeah, under the current climate, like I said, people can't afford, you know, it's, it, it, what if it's a choice between, a low, uh, between some food and a box of tampons? <laughs> mm, yeah, it should, ju- well, it should be treated as the life necessity that it is much like food. I mean, I think it's great that you're saying that some food banks are stocking those things as other essentials, but as far as I'm aware, that's definitely not the norm. I mean, the thing is, is what I wanted to say to that is, you know, every country, no matter where you talk about, they're all having their own healthcare crisis. They're all having their own social economic crisis. But I think it is actually very crucial the bodies looked at multi-systemically now in the sense of to understand it fully and not one part be left as a taboo, which is actually one of the most important parts of the body, you know? And I think, you know, you were discussing with us there, Jess, about your story. I mean, you've been through, like, a lot, you know, and full respect to you what you've been through, you know, and how that affected you and everything. Because, you know, it takes a strong person like yourself to it deal m- with it that. It must have been really hard for you, you know? to be, to move, like, halfway across the world and then have all these issues to deal with, with no support around you and, and, and a foreign language and, you know, not knowing where you were. It must have been awful for you, Jess. I mean, it was extremely difficult. I think I kind of look back at it with mixed feelings because it was awful, but at the same time, um, in a weird way, it was kind of a good catalyst for me to get my life back on track because I felt very, you know, I felt very stuck when I was in Australia, like I had tried to investigate my health problems a lot and hadn't really gained any traction with anybody. And in a weird way, yeah, having a fresh start in a new country um, kind of helped me get that on track. And I was very lucky with um, some of the doctors that I connected with early on when I was here and that really helped. So like obviously there is a huge luck element to that, but 
I'm kind of glad it happened because I do worry about the situation that I would still be in now if I hadn't have moved at the time uh, that I did. Yeah. And I think the thing is that sometimes the hardest points in our life actually make us reassess and, re- and reevaluate what is important to us and what makes us happy and what is our quality of life as individuals, you know. And I think, you know, it's good that, you know, where you're based, you are getting the help that you are compared to like in Australia, you know, but it also goes to show how things like the healthcare system is very different depending on what countries you go to, you know. That's exactly right. So like, for example, here in Belgium, you can go visit a gynecologist without a referral from a general practitioner. And um, that's something that I think is really great because um, some GPs are great, but some unfortunately are not, especially when it comes to complex health issues. And I think um, I really love having the autonomy to be able to talk to people and do my own reading and find a gynecologist that takes complex cases, for example, and be able to call them up and make an appointment without anyone else gatekeeping it. And that's just like one example of something that's quite different here that's really helped me. And look, I mean, I'm not saying neither system are perfect. Both of them have pros and cons. But in general, the system has suited me better here in Belgium. No, I mean, I actually lived in Mexico um, for quite a bit of time. Um, So I lived quite a few years there. Um, And when I consider it compared to the UK-based NHS to the you know, Mexico, sometimes I have to say to some people and remind them that, you know, like when I had a certain issue out in Mexico quite, you know, way, way, way back in my 20s now, you know, I went to one hospital and it cost me nearly £6,000 for the oh treatment. Goodness. You know, so when you're thinking of that, I, I sit there and when some people, you know, look as in, we know the NHS is under stress, right? We get it. But, you know, when some people go, it's taken so long, I'm like, well, that's how much you would pay in Mexico if you want that, that treatment. And if you, you know? pay £6,000 I mean, yeah. here, you get that treatment within a couple of weeks. You know, so, yeah. yeah. And that's a big, a double-edged mm. sword. You know, it's, it's the money aspect there as well. So if you went private, you'd get it seen a lot quicker here. But, you know, that's another issue as well. And, you know, with uh, COVID and things like that, it's pushed the waiting list. How are services with you there, Jess, after COVID in Belgium? Yeah, I would say, like, in the last year, things have been a lot more stable. Um, When we were initially in lockdown in 2020, it did have quite a big impact on waiting times. Like, I had to wait quite a long time to see... A rheumatologist initially um a weight which turned out to be not at all worth it so it didn't really matter in the end but um yeah when I was in the initial diagnostic process um there were quite long delays uh, not years fortunately but yeah quite reasonable delays um and with uh things related to um EDS it can be quite long still but I'm not sure how that's been affected by COVID um the wait time for our main EDS specialist here in Brussels is like around is there a spe- months. Is there a specific so. clinic there in Brussels for EDS or is it just uh, like the the rheumatologist and an EDS specialist? So we have um, in Brussels specifically, there's one person in particular who's um, my doctor who's really great, who has his own clinic, but he's the only um, 
like doctor there. There are a few other professionals who do like supporting services like um, orthopedics and things like that. Mm. Um, and they work together on the patients, which is great. Um, and there are a couple of other rheumatologists um, with like more of an interest in EDS that you can see. But the trouble that I had is that if you have um, a case where you're experiencing like mast cell activation and some of those other common comorbidities, a lot of the times rheumatologists are not informed about those or possibly, well, not possibly. I, it's it's factual actually to say that most of them aren't super interested in keeping up to date with research. And so um, it's really hard to get support for those issues. Like um, I was really lucky because my GP was the one that um, referred me to this EDS specialist specifically because um, we were both concerned that I was having mast cell activation syndrome and um, he has been quite a pioneer in researching the link between EDS and MCAS and he wrote an article which she handed me to have a look at which was basically just the story of my life so I knew that he was the person that I needed to go see. I think that's the thing I think you know I think you've just explained it really like it's you know, quite similar in other certain countries as well. Some don't have specific EGS clinics, but it's like maybe like your EGS rheumatologist will go, oh, I work with these other surgeons if you need to see them or these other people. So it's more about working with your team to get the right people than it is finding the right clinic. Because if you do get, if you do come across a clinic, generally the wait is really long as well. Um, so I do find a lot of the time it is about the doctors working with other particular doctors to put you connected with them to get the right treatment, if that makes sense. That's exactly right. And I'm not sure what it's like in the UK, but I feel like a lot of stuff is unfortunately kind of word of mouth here. Like yeah. Yeah. you have to connect with the right people to find out who deals with EDS patients and similarly with They're- my where gynecological I issues there, there's um, nobody where I, I had to for find... example we don't get um any help with um, I I have to see whoever is selected for me then Jess whoever's free whoever's got the shortest waiting list in the rheumatology department so currently my specialist isn't a specialist in EDS and doesn't really know much about it so but she's a rheumatologist so that's deemed that, that that you know I've been referred to the right person so that's that but she doesn't know it it's not her specialty and um she's she's more interested yeah. in AS, isn't she, Fee? Um so she's more interested in mm. AS as a rheumatological disorder rather than Ellis Danos. So her understanding is is you know, she she hasn't read lots of the, the thousands of publications like me and Fee have then on on EDS. So she's read them mm-hmm. on her specialist subject and I think this is the issue. If unless they uh, the doctor themselves have an, an an interest in it, like with the mast cell issues too. You know, um, they they have to have an understanding of the Ellis Danos and all the multi systemic issues that we face, like gastrointestinal, uh, like uh, chronic fatigue symptoms, like repeated infections and immune dysfunctions, like all the problems we're talking about today, all the the dysfunctions that we have with the bleeding and pain, and and I mean we you know we get widespread pain, not just you know, uh, from that, isn't it? At, at the end of the day, all these things need to be taken into account and we need to be looked at as a whole rather than, um, as I've said before, when I've had a problem with my, my arm for years, my left arm, um, where I've had cervical root compression. So I have problems with my shoulder, my elbow, my wrist. For my arm, I have to three three different p- people. 
for my spine, the same. I've got herniated discs from top to bottom, but I need different people because one deals with the uh, the cervical, one deals with thoracic, and one deals with the lumbar. And to me, that seems ridiculous, if I'm honest, because then they don't understand what the other, as we've just pointed out, uh, profession, they don't read further into that and then see that a lot of these things are actually crossovers and some of them are even pretty much similar, like fibromyalgia, uh, people with fibromyalgia. I was diagnosed with that first um, and I'm now diagnosed with it as secondary. My mum's diagnosed with fibromyalgia, but she's not diagnosed with heads, even though she's very hypermobile. It's just that she's never seen the professional and been um, referred as being hypermobile, but she is very hypermobile. I've watched my mum dislocate her kneecaps with her own hand. And yeah, I, I've watched her do it. Do you see what I mean? And so she's extremely hypermobile, but she's just never seen a specialist. And she's at the point in her life where she's not that really that bothered now because she's got all these issues and it's just... Do I really need another diagnosis is my mum's attitude towards it. I think the thing is here is there's many things here. I mean, from a research point, it is important for doctors to keep up to date because they're now aware of the new type of findings coming out and correlations they can find. That's a critical point. But there's a, there's a double-edged sword here because, I mean, we've discussed this before that a lot of doctors don't have the time to sit there and read. But then there's also that complication because if you're not up to date with research, how can you understand the correlations or your specialism if you're not reading about that research? Because that could be quite pivotal when it comes to patient care as well. From the point of view, if you've read um, and kept up to date, you know, for your particular specialism, you know, that may impact on your patients in the clinic as well. And I think that's another thing that needs to be considered. But the one thing I wanted to go back to you, Jess, was how are you now dealing with everything gynecologically speaking? Are you getting the right help? Are you getting the right care now? Yeah, so first of all, I'll just say I totally agree with what you've both said. And I kind of think this is where we've gone a little bit wrong with the Western modern medical model um just my opinion obviously but as much as i think it's great that we have all these specialists who know a lot about very specific things we've really lost that ability to look at the whole person and look at multi-systemic illnesses i was just talking about this the other day in a separate arena but yeah i actually think it's a real problem for people um with illnesses like eladan loss and actually like a lot of your kind of rarer or not truly rare but underdiagnosed illnesses, what they have in common is that they are multisystemic and so they're not picked up on. But um, yes, so back to your question. Um, so I would say that I have definitely made like some progress with these issues. Um, the kind of like muscular and tactile pain that I was experiencing, I had um, and I am still having pelvic floor therapy and that was really useful. Um, the physiotherapist that I saw was good. She explained a lot to me about the links between um, fibromyalgia and um, vulvodynia because, of course, the genitals are just another area that have nerve endings. And similarly with um, connective tissue disorders and pelvic pain because it's just another area with soft tissues that um, can be not quite right in this situation, particularly um, the link between collagen structure and vaginal elasticity and how uh, EDS patients often have to make a conscious effort to maintain a healthy mobile pelvic floor. Um, and 
so I had some manual release, which was painful, but worth it. Um, and we also worked on making sure that I could relax my pelvic floor muscles as deeply as I could contract them because what I was doing was being in a perpetual state of kind of clenching them to compensate for other muscles in my body that weren't strong enough. And um, she told me she's seen a lot of people like that. And it comes back to what we were saying before, you know, if you're at the physio, it would be very common to talk about, you know, having one side stronger than the other or some other kind of maladaptive little compensation pattern with our muscles, but we aren't talking about the pelvic floor because it's taboo, which is ridiculous. Um, Something that I did want to circle back to because we talked a little bit about um, menstrual health is what I do still struggle with is like deep pelvic pain and leg pain um, during sex. And um, that's something that can be really challenging. I think coming back to what I said before about how information about um, sexual dysfunction can be quite shallow. If you are a young girl like myself and, well, like I was at the time, um, and you are feeling hesitant about reaching out to a professional for help because you're embarrassed, you might decide to Google, um, ask Dr. Google for help. And there's almost certainly going to be an article in the first like five, 10 results that pops up about chronic pain and sex that says something about how even though you're in pain, you should have sex anyway because orgasms release chemicals which will make you feel better. And if that works for you, I'm very happy for you, albeit perhaps a little bit jealous. But for some people, myself included, if you have problems with your internal organs like your uterus, orgasms can actually cause extreme pain and like uterus cramps that last for days afterwards. And so that's not necessarily good advice. And I just had like nobody to talk to about that very intimate area of my life um and uh something that we I assume we can talk about this because we did talk about it a little bit in our initial discussion but just a little trigger warning about infertility for anybody who doesn't want to listen to it um I am having a partial hysterectomy in a couple of weeks time um it's mainly because I've been having very long, heavy periods since I was 12, as I mentioned, and because of the size of the blood clots that I've been passing and the fact that I'm at the end of the line treatment-wise with everything else. Um, and so uh, painful sex is far from being the primary reason that I'm having this surgery, but I am hoping that it will really help because I do find that in that second half of my hormonal cycle in between ovulation and menstruation, um, that's when I have that really bad, deep pain. Um, and you know, I, it's just, it's obviously horrible, but I also, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not very nice to, when you're already struggling with chronic pain and maybe like self-confidence and things like that, that come with it, it's not nice to have to suddenly it, work it to a schedule. It's a very difficult decision to for you to make, Jess. So. No, you know, it actually wasn't as callous as that might sound. Like it's, I really feel for people who are perhaps have other goals in life and aren't able to make a really quick, firm decision like I have. But as someone who for various reasons doesn't plan on giving birth and who actually has 
quite crippling anxiety about accidental pregnancy. If anything, I was actually relieved when I found a surgeon who was informed about um, the complications as I was having and was willing to do that surgery at my age because I am still in my 20s. And so it's yeah. not will, very will commonly Will the surgery performed. then induce early menopause in you, Jess? Or potentially? So there is always going to be a small risk of the blood supply getting cut off to the ovaries, but... Because I'm only having a partial hysterectomy and I'm keeping my cervix, um, a lot of the ligaments and vessels that supply the blood to the ovaries will remain. So the risk at my age is very low, fortunately. Um, Yes, so at the moment, no menopause, but my ovaries, as far as I'm concerned, my ovaries days are numbered too because, as I said, I also have premenstrual dysphoria, um, which can be very challenging and it's too early to make that decision, but um, that that's potentially on the cards for one day too. So I think what I want to say to you is, is I think me and Danny can understand from a quality of life perspective when it comes to pain, menstruation, when you have mm-hmm. that recurrently every single month and you're going through a lot of pain and it's affecting your quality of life, you know, there has to come a choice for that individual. Well, yeah, I mean, that, uh, that makes it an easy choice then, I'm sure. If you, you know, once you've suffered for that so badly, it makes it an easy yeah. choice, doesn't it? Because your quality of life will improve. You know, that's what you're hoping for, isn't it? To have a better quality of life after it. That's exactly it. And I think you've kind of, I suppose, filled out the gap a little bit in my answer before. And maybe what I should have said is that Part of the reason that it was such an easy decision is because, like, I have been on and off treatments nonstop since I was 12. So for 16 years now um, and just, like, I am very much finished with letting these issues wreck 25 to 50% of my life nonstop um, because, you know, either all the treatments I've tried, they haven't worked for me or they've severely aggravated my MCAS and EDS symptoms and just also, I feel like there have been times where there's been a pretty significant impact on my brain as well with waiting for it to straighten out from mm-hmm. the constant barrage of different doses of hormones and things yeah, like bless, that. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> and, no, I mean, full respect to you, you know, Jess. And I think, like I said, it is about each individual's quality of life and what they, you know, need is and, you know, to improve their quality of life, especially when they've been through a lot as well. You know, and coming from me and Danny as well, who's been through a lot, as in when it comes to menstruation, like yourself, mm-hmm. pain and issues like that, we totally understand, you know, when it comes to quality of life reasons, you know. But I just wanted to ask you, as in a part of Roundup now, so mm. what do you want to see for the EDS community is my first question. And where do the improvements need to come? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, actually, (laughs) (laughs) yes, and it's a big question. I think that, so the first thing I think we've kind of already touched on quite a lot, which is that I would love to see us discussing um, all these different potential aspects of sexual dysfunction with the same kind of freedom and willingness that we do other aspects of our health and well-being because, you know, other than social stigma, there's no difference between them. Um, I would love to see us working towards having less shame and embarrassment about sex. It's still something 
like I won't pretend that I'm totally comfortable talking about all of this stuff, but I have made the effort to try and consciously work through some of those feelings and I'm a lot happier for it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I would love to see, I was lucky with the doctor that I ended up speaking to about this because she was great. She was very empathetic and she pointed me in the direct, right direction with pelvic floor therapy. But, you know, I would love for that to be the norm for all medical professionals to be informed about these issues and possibly even for the question to be asked preemptively more in the same way that we do preventative health for all other aspects of our well-being. I know, Fiona, you touched on the fact that um, doctors don't really ask it when they're evaluating you for EDS. And um, I believe it's, other than prolapse, it's not really mentioned at all in the diagnostic criteria at present time, at least for hypermobile EDS, which is the type that I have. Um, and it would be great, even if it's not going to be part of the official criteria, for it to be spoken about properly. And I think that both, you know, from medical professionals and also, you know, lay people like me, I think it would be great if we could share more information amongst ourselves too in the same way that, you know, it's not great that our community has been forced to share a lot of our own tips and tricks amongst each other, but it is the reality of it. And for me, I found it incredibly helpful getting information and advice from my peers. And, you know, I think like, as I said, if you go online, there's not really much to help with things like sexual dysfunction at the moment. Um, I've had to figure a lot of it out myself, particularly. I know with the stuff like that Danny was mentioning when it comes to joint dislocations and things like that, I, I'm fortunate I've been able to figure out a few tricks like using therapy pillows and stuff to support my body. But I would love for that to become the norm, like something you can just easily find information about and share um, with other people in our communities. Obviously, you know in a safe and kind of conservative way, like it's not a substitute for medical care, but yeah, we just love for it to be more normalized in the same way we have many other aspects of this condition because it is, as you said, a Perhaps complex multi-systemic illness. Between the three of us then, for to, maybe um, on the subject of, of we, like we said, you found pillows helpful and, and, and things like that. Maybe we could, do, we could collaborate and do something like that potentially. I love that idea. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'll I'll go into as much detail as you yeah. let me, and as Instagram will let us. <laughs> I don't think it's a disclaimer. That's absolutely fine, there, um, Jess. You know, because at the end of the day, that's what disclaimers are there for. But I think it would be a really good idea to do something like that, and I think it will be positive as well. But I just wanted to say to you, Jess. Um, you know, thank you very much for coming on our podcast. You've been absolutely fantastic. Full respect to you for being transparent about everything. You know, anyone that's come on our podcast, you know, we've always said, me and Danny, our DMs are open, our messages are always open to you guys, you know, and it's people like yourself and others that have come on the podcast that are talking about these subjects, which will give that transparency to the community. And I think it is absolutely cru crucial moving forwards to make those correlations as well, because like you said, certain parts of sexual dysfunction is not on you know, the criteria and, you know, we need to start talking about everything multi-systemically. So, it's, you go. Yeah, look, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and for creating a space to talk about these things in like a safe and supportive way. I think that's really, really important because, you know, even though I've had my time to make peace with a lot of the things um, that we've spoken about, it's, 
you know, it's not easy and it is, mm. um, it can create quite a vulnerable feeling in people. And I think knowing that it can help other people is what motivates me to talk about it anyway, even though it can be a little scary sometimes. Yeah. But I really, really appreciate um, both you, Fiona and Danny, for yeah, platforming these issues. It's so important and you guys are really oh. paving the way to create a better future for our community. No, thank yeah, you. thank you. Again, that's again we're the same as you, Jess, in that, you know, we've we've been looking for answers ourselves for so many years and, and you know, me and Fee's way of dealing with it was to hit the books basically, wasn't it, Fee? You know, and we've re- we've literally read I, I I just wouldn't even I can't even imagine how many publications even today alone. I've read about fifty publications today, Jess, because that's what I do. It's like my hobby now. Uh, it's become a hobby almost um so yeah it, uh, but it is that's what I said I mean if we can make a post together that'd be great so anybody listening today if they wanted to uh drop like you said drop us a message if they don't want to put it publicly or anything but let us know things you found useful you know things you find helpful things you've had an issue with um and and you know we'll raise it like you said it's important to raise the things that nobody else is talking about because these things are affecting all of us, but just nobody talks about it and nobody says anything about it. Danny, can we, can <laughs> yeah, we please so call an EDS sexpert sex patient? <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> the sexpert edition. Yeah, the sex bird edition is perfect, and that would really get the twang out to the community as well. I think that would be really awesome, guys. Perfect word, Jess. Honestly, perfect. But I'm just going to round it up there. So again, thank you very much for coming on, Jess, and for everybody listening to our podcast. It is for information only, and please seek medical advice from your registered medical professional. So thank you very much, everybody. Thanks for watching, and again, thank you, Jess. And our DMs always open to you. All right. Bye. Take care. (laughs) Bye.